I love it. So much information, so much humor. Pastor Adam, I think your hair looks great. Your facial hair is on point. <laughs> looks good, looks good. Man, it is so good to be back here. Uh, my wife had kind of mentioned earlier, but we were in Italy for the last couple of weeks, uh, just enjoying all the sights and sounds. It was awesome. But I got to tell you, Dream City Church, Arbor and I would talk, and we legitimately would mention how much we missed seeing you guys every Sunday. I got to tell you, we, you know, we saw some old historical churches. We saw great sights. When we came into this house and we heard Kyler sing that first song, Jehovah, man, the presence of God hit. We understood there's no place like Dream City Church. Give yourself a big round of applause this morning. Ah, man, we are so excited to be here. And we're in our What Did Jesus Say About series. This is a great series where it kind of like gives us as a church just a big blank canvas to talk about all the hot button issues in society. What did Jesus say about multiple different things? We love being able to address it as a church. But this week, we're going to be focusing on a pretty controversial topic in the pulpits today, a topic that seldom gets talked about and typically gets brushed over very quickly because it does tend to make people uncomfortable, and that subject is lust. So this week, we're talking about what did Jesus say about lust? Before we begin, what is lust? It's more than just obsessing over men and women. Lust is more than just sexual sin and temptation. Lust is typically getting something at someone else's expense. Juxtapose that with love. Love is typically giving something to someone else at my own expense. Lust seeks to take and love seeks to give. You see, lust is like this burning, this intense and sometimes even painful desire inside all of us to fill this passion, fill this need, fill a desire that we have. That there's something we want more of, or perhaps something we don't have yet, and there's this force inside of us that seeks to prompt us to grab it. That there's literally this, this pull inside of us that we don't know where it came from, and it yearns for something that we see. See, the Bible often uses the word covet to symbolize lust. Whenever you see lust, you, can, you kind, of, kind of switch out the word covet. They're kind of interchangeable a little bit. Thou shalt not covet is the 10th commandment from God. God knows that the, that the spirit of lust, the spirit behind us coveting can be deadly in many ways for us, and so he sought to outlaw it from our lives. But we as humans can lust after many things. As I mentioned, it's not just sexual immorality. We can lust after money, like the story of Ebenezer Scrooge from the Christmas story, or Mr. Burns from The Simpsons, for my educated people. We can lust after property or land, like the Soviet Union did after World War II. We can lust after objects like Smeagol left it after his precious in Lord of the Rings. We can lust after people. We can seek to seduce people, to rape people like Jeffrey Dahmer did and all those horrible people in the 1970s. But the one common denominator we see from all these examples of characters, both real and fictional, is that the lust they were so desperately seeking to fill never benefit their life at all. That what they were searching so desperately for never actually helped them. I mean, literally, in Lord of the Rings, in Smeagol's attempt, when he finally gets the ring off Mr. Frodo's hands, he's like, puts it on his hand, and he falls in a volcano. Like, literally, that burning desire for the ring caused him to literally burn to death. That what Smeagol really wanted, when he finally got it, it didn't help him out. You see, there's something sinister. There's something evil that's the source of placing that desire in all of us. Not to help us, but to hurt us. I gotta tell you, friends, in this house, what we often think is serving us, we end up serving it. That what we thought was aiding us is actually draining us from the inside out. Can I get a quick amen this morning? Can I get a quick amen this morning? 
There's a very famous story in history that backs this whole thing up. In the 1920s and 1930s in Europe, there's a very famous story of this young and up-and-coming artist. He grew up in a dysfunctional home, a broken home. He only had his mom in his life. And he was trying to make it big in Europe as an artist. And so he would often kind of save up his money and he'd go visit all the museums in uh, Austria so he could get some inspiration on what to paint. And one day this young, poor artist is walking and he notices a display titled The Spear of Destiny. I've got kind of a picture of it for you guys to watch. He looks up and he sees this object called the Spear of Destiny. And he reads about it. And he finds out that this spear is believed by the church and church history and church dogma to be what's known as the Spear of Longinus or that was the spear used by the Roman soldier to pierce Christ Jesus in his side and cause him to bleed out. That this is the exact spear that killed Jesus. That on this spear would be Christ's blood. The same blood that raised the dead. The same blood that can heal every sickness and disease. The same blood of God is on this spear. And the museum states that the historical kind of legend of this spear was that whoever was in control of this spear, it would be their destiny to rule the world. And like, that's a big claim. What does history have for that claim? Literally, in the history of people who have owned this, we have in the 8th and 9th centuries, King Charlemagne, the first Holy Roman Emperor, was supposedly to have personally wielded the spear on 47 successful military campaigns. On the road to his 48th campaign, he dropped the spear and he died. This spear, on one hand, if you hold it, would give you conquest and you become invincible. But the moment you would lose it, you would die. That was the trade-off. Even goes forward into Frederick Barbarossa, who was a, another Holy Roman Emperor who lived in the, in the 1100s. He conquered half of Italy, and on the Third Crusade, he was marching in to, to Turkey, and he dropped the spear in a river, and three minutes later, he drowned in that river trying to get it out. It went through emperors. Even Napoleon Bonaparte had this spear at one point in time. We knew what happened to him. And it eventually found its way to the Habsburg dynasty in Austria, and they put it on a museum for all to see. And one day that little artist went into German politics and he climbed the ranks to chancellor, or as I said in Germany, the Fuhrer. And Adolf Hitler, when he became uh, emperor, the day he annexed Austria on March 13th, uh, 1938, when he came right into Vienna, Austria, he had his whole group of cars, his whole blockade. This is, they even recorded this too. You can go watch it online. The very first thing he did as emperor was he walked into that museum kicked open the glass case and took the spear, turned to the crowd and said, I now have that which will lead me to my destiny. A lot of us who have studied World War II know how the kind of goes. Hitler took over France. He took over Spain, took over Italy. He was conquering the whole European board. He was the first man to ever breach the London shores and drop bombs upon London. What's crazy about the spear of destiny is that it didn't help Hitler. The Allies in 1945 breached Nuremberg, the spiritual capital of Germany. And in doing so, they found Hitler's secret vault of all his priceless art, all of his jewels, and they found the spear of destiny. And they took it from him. And they took it back to the Allies. And what's crazy is 18 minutes after the Allies had gotten the spear back, they got a phone call from the Allies in Berlin to find that they had just found Hitler's dead body from an apparent suicide. So what's crazy is the thing Hitler lusted after most in his entire life did not help him. Didn't help him one bit. Friends, I gotta tell you, history will repeat itself. Oftentimes there are things we left at, lust after thinking it will be what gives us victory, but if I'm being honest, it's the very thing that takes us out. 
If I could have everybody just bow their heads and close their eyes with me as we invite the presence of the Holy Spirit. Please bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I thank you, Lord, for the word that you've given your servant. Holy Spirit, I pray that as my mouth opens up, let it be your word that comes out, your word with the power to heal, your word the power to bring a new beginning, a new destiny, a new tomorrow. Holy Spirit, I pray that the hearts of those in this crowd can receive your word and act upon it. In Jesus' mind, and everybody said, amen. We're gonna get good. So the title of this message this morning, the title of this message is called La La Land. The title of this message is called La La Land. I like to have creative titles, and I like the movie La La Land. Not only is La La Land based on a movie, but it's also based, it's a name for the worst city in the world, Los Angeles. Anybody from Los Angeles? I'm sorry that you're from Los Angeles. Okay, let's, let's move on. I go with San Diego boys, so the Dodgers are like my sworn rivals. But La La Land is a movie starring Ryan Gosling, who plays a man living in LA, who's trying to make it big in the show business world, but he has to overcome his insecurities in order to succeed. In the end of his life, it didn't turn out fully how he expected to. I love La La Land, but the ending did make me mad. And like, I was like, what? That's how it ends? Like, come on, what the heck? That literally, Ryan Gosling had all these things to address, but because he didn't, his story never ended how he thought it should. Much like the life you and I live, there are twists and turns that we have to address. If we turn a blind eye, if we plug our ears and go la, 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 la to everything, we'll find that we won't escape the dysfunction, issues, or problems of our lives, but we'll only be deeper in them. That La La Land may seem like a fun and happy place, and sure, La La Land's a good place to visit, to detox every once in a while, but we're never meant to live there. We aren't meant to live a life surrounded with vices and temptations that we just turn a blind eye to. A phrase that gets used a lot that I heard a lot growing up, especially just from you know, good-intentioned church people, was they would say, it's better to live with the devil you know than the devil you don't know. As if to say, it's okay to turn a blind eye to some dysfunction if you're used to it and just, just live the rest of your life better than having a whole new can of worms if you address it. I remember always hearing this like, what the heck are you talking about? Like, I don't wanna live with the devil at all. If I'm driving with the devil, I know I'm opening the door, kicking him out, having him walk back to where he came from. I'm like, I'm not living with a devil that I know. Yet how many of us have these little devils that we know, but yet we're still living in la-la land? You see, we're meant to have a life and have it to the full. Sometimes that means that we deal with things head on and begin to examine our hearts and change. And in doing so, we go from la-la land to the promised land. So point number one this morning, point number one, is don't get it twisted. Point number one for those taking notes and wanna get you know, free Chick-fil-A in heaven, that's what happens. Point number one is don't get it twisted. Don't get it twisted. Uh, one of the seldom kind of talked about quotes from Jesus is found in Mark eight fifteen, and I'll read it for us. And he was giving orders to them, he being Jesus, saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So the context here is Jesus is telling his disciples to not follow the leaven, which is just a symbol for the, for the lifestyle of King Herod, who represents worldliness. But he also mentions the Pharisees who symbolize legalism. Jesus fully compares a worldly lifestyle to a legalistic lifestyle. According to Jesus, literally right here, he's saying that worldliness is just as deadly as legalism. That legalism is just as destructive as worldliness. Now, a lot of us in here, we all know the dangers of worldliness. You know, we, we know what comes with a life filled with drunkenness, of a life filled with sexual immorality and how it can implode a society from within. We know of how greed and money will ruin us. We know all of these things. And a lot of us, God bless us, avoid these things. But some of us end up tiptoeing into the realm of thinking that by doing good works, we can earn salvation and holiness and we can work our way out of what we're struggling in. 
little Bible trivia for you. Who was the very first person to think that his works, what he could do, could earn him salvation with God? As you're thinking this over, the very first person to ever have this idea was Cain. The very first person in the Bible to live a works-based salvation was Cain. The story goes that Cain and Abel, the two, two brothers, are giving their offerings to God, and Cain brought forth God the crops that he produced. Abel brought forth God the fat of his rams. God looked at Cain's offering and rejected it. So I want nothing to do with it. And he looked at Abel's offering and blessed it. Well, how come? When I was a kid, I was like, God, that just sounds like you don't like vegetables. You're like me. I'm like, God, you are so awesome. I would, I'd want some lamb too. I'm like, but the more I read, the more I began to understand, Cain gave from God that which was from the ground. Now what's important is, is because one chapter earlier in Genesis 3, the fall of man, God did not curse Adam. When Adam was made, God blessed Adam. God doesn't bless and then curse. He's not bipolar. So God told Adam, cursed be the ground for your sake. Yet what did Cain seek to give God? He seeked to give him the curse, as if to say, God, I know that you cursed this, but look how hard I worked. Look at what I've done. God, you have to approve of this. And God looked and said, I can't. That's not enough for me. But we juxtapose that with Abel, who was like, God, I'm giving you the fat of my rams because there's nothing I can do to ever really be worthy of you. Just have all of my life, have all of me. Now, Cain was the very first person to understand that no matter how good we are, how many laws we keep, we still can't measure up to God's perfect holiness. Yet a lot of us have it twisted that by adding rules to our lives and burdening ourselves, we can find the life Jesus promised us. We seem to forget that Jesus literally promised to us an easy burden in Matthew eleven thirty, Come to me, all you who are needing rest, all you who are burdened. My burden is easy. My yoke is light. That was a promise from Jesus. See, we can't think that by adding rules to our lives, it, it can make us the person of God we're meant to be and live the life God wanted us to. Historian Will Durant said one of my most favorite quotes about Jesus, and he compared it to the life of Caesar. He said, Caesar thought, if I can change the law, then the man will change. But Jesus knew, if I change the man, he will then change the law. You see, that's the exact reason why Jesus called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. They had all the laws done on the outside, but they were messed up on the inside. Their hearts didn't care for God or the people but for their own appearance. They wanted to look holy up front, but then do their wrong in the back. They would show up in church. They'd sit in the front. They'd wash their hands before every meal. They would pray. They would serve. They would tithe. They even went through the Next Steps growth track. That's how committed they were. They were doing all the right things, but yet they were sitting in church hating Jesus. Hating what Jesus stood for. Showing compassion to the sick and compassion to the sinners. You see, they made other people act like them even when they weren't at the spiritual maturity yet. They would divorce their wives when they got old for no other reason than they were now old and less attractive and they wanted a younger woman. They thought they were holy, but a whitewashed tomb, they were just filled with death. They were on a fast track to hell with the same sinners they despised. That the holiness they coveted, the holiness they lusted after, that wasn't helping them at all. So I used to ask my youth group this question a lot. I would always ask, what is the deadliest weapon? It's like, what is the deadliest weapon in the world? And some kids would shout out a nuke. Some kids would shout out a gun, a knife. You know, the bigger kids would say vegetables. And I'm like, you're not wrong, but you should definitely eat some more broccoli. You know, <laughs> it's just very healthy for you. But they kind of say the whole list. It would kind of end. And I always say, the weapon that is the deadliest is the weapon you never see coming. The weapon that you never knew 
was pointed right towards you is the one that often takes you out the most. Because we as Christians, we know the horrors of alcohol. We, we can steer clear. We can pick good friends, make good choices. But the whitewashed, the whitewashed tomb, something that looks good on the outside but filled with death, we never saw that coming until it was too late. They often say that the unseen blade is the deadliest. See, legalism, the yeast of the Pharisees, tells us we're holy, we're good, we're perfect in the sight of God, and it causes us to become blind to the areas we need to surrender to God. Yes, some rules, some structures, some order can provide relief and assistance to a hard area. I'm not advocating for life without rules or lawlessness, but we aren't to live with the yeast of Pharisees or legalism. See, a lot of us have heard this verse in Matthew 5, 27 and 29, where Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown in hell. Now this is a profound statement from Jesus, revolutionary in its time, and it's so true. This is a verse that I hold near to my heart because it truthfully shows me what really matters in life. But if I'm being honest, this verse oftentimes gets very misconstrued. Jesus isn't telling us to live a life with one eye, to live a mangled, to live this half life. Otherwise, he would never have said that he came to give us a life and life to the full. Jesus is telling us to deal with our sins in our own lives and not to try and force the outside world to conform to our struggles. We're supposed to be attracted to people of the opposite sex. Let me tell you, you are not a freak if you're a man for thinking a girl's attractive, nor for a girl to think that a man is attractive. If I'm being honest, it's when you don't think the opposite gender is attractive that we got a problem. Can I get a quick amen this morning? <laughs> because that's how God designed it to be. You see, the word Jesus used for lust in that scripture we just read is this Greek word, epithumeo, which means mismanaged, misdirected, or mishandled sexual desire, fantasy, or intent. But even if you haven't committed the physical act of adultery, if you've lusted in one of these areas, then you are just in, then you're in just as bad a place. If I'm being honest, who hasn't done something like that? If there was a rule that you could only make it into church if you hadn't you know, lusted after a person with that definition, I'd be preaching to an empty auditorium. I probably wouldn't even be preaching, right? Because Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Jesus didn't say that to break us down and cause us to develop a guilty conscience. He was saying that to understand there's a deeper meaning than just physical acts. You see, what Jesus was saying is that if our eye causes us to sin because we're looking at inappropriate things, then we need to deal with it ourselves. And it might hurt. It might hurt us. Like if I'm being honest, gouging out my eye sounds very painful. <laughs> and I think Jesus knew what he was talking about. He says it's gonna hurt to do this. But I, I love when Pastor Luke talks about the story from C.S. Lewis about the man who was kind of climbing up the mountain to encounter God, and he has that ghost lizard on his shoulder. A lot of us have heard that before. But he encounters an angel, and the angel says, I can take care of that ghost for you. And the guy's like, okay, will it kill me? And the angel's like, it's not gonna kill you. So he starts to take away the ghost lizard, and the lizard's screaming in pain, and the guy's like, ow, this hurts me, this hurts me. The man cries to the angel, you said it wouldn't hurt. But the angel responds, he said, I never said it wouldn't hurt you. I just said it wouldn't kill you. Friends, I gotta tell you, some of the most painful conversations, confessions, mistakes I've made, when I'm willing to go through that pain, it always leads me to living the life I was meant to live. You see, sometimes we need to properly deal with our flesh and it might cause us some pain along the way. You see, Jesus was clearly referencing the need of each of us to take accountability in our lives and do what we can to ensure we have the upper hand over our flesh. You see, in Muslim countries, 
uh, they force women to cover their bodies from head to toe to prevent the men from stumbling into lust. That's why they do it. That's why they have the burkas. That's why they have the whole garbs on is so that because God made women to be beautiful and if they're beautiful, it will then automatically cause men to lust. So they force the women to lock down their beauty and just withhold it all in. What's crazy is the country with the largest addiction to pornography is Pakistan, which is a Muslim country. The stuff doesn't even work. These people who are so obsessed with you conforming to their standards are still the ones who are the most addicted on the inside. Because I gotta tell you, if you're not dealing with it on the inside you, it's gonna have no change on the outside you. You see, now it's the job of the church to equip men and women with the Holy Spirit so they don't dress, promote, or behave in a way that would cause someone to stumble. Absolutely. That's the heart of the matter. That's exactly why Jesus was telling us to address ourselves. That's why Jesus so profoundly stated that if a man looked at another woman with lust, he had committed adultery in the heart. Not physical adultery, but that his heart was going to lead him in the wrong place if left unchecked. Some people have this incorrect idea that adultery in the heart and physical adultery are the same exact thing, but they're not. You can ever see Jesus in scripture saying, you know what, if you've had a lustful thought, just go ahead and do it, it's the same thing. I mean, if you've ever had an incorrect thought, just do it. It's all the same at the end of the day. No, it's not the same thing. Although adultery begins in the heart, physical manifestation of adultery is the heart issue plus so much more. It includes deceit, betrayal, damaging of a family, the breaking of a promise, deeply hurting your spouse. Just ask anybody who's ever been wounded by it. But friends, don't get it twisted. The lust in our heart is not the same as full-fledged adultery, but it's just as deadly. The yeast of Herod is deadly, but so too is the yeast of the Pharisees. It might not be the same thing, but it will lead you to the same place. Because sometimes we never realize how much of a hold it has on us until it's too late. A lot of us in here never knew that that small trip with pornography would lead us to having an affair, cheating on our spouse. We never knew that just by keeping your options open, keeping that little black book, keeping that Facebook contact, keeping that phone number in your phone for just a time will cause you to have a regretful sexual encounter. We didn't know what that little thing on the inside of us was gonna do. See, it tends to be the events we never see coming that give us the most trouble. See, we see the sad reality of a heart left unchecked in a story of King David found in 2 Samuel 11. David is known for many great accomplishments. Aubrey and I were in Italy. We got to see Michelangelo's David. It's beautiful. It's incredible. It's majestic. He's got his stones. He's about to take out Goliath. I felt led to do an altar call right there. I'm like, do you guys want to know the God who made this guy is? You should meet him. Like, that's how epic it is. David did so many incredible things. Took out Goliath. Was a king for 40 years. Gained territory. Wrote majority of the book of Psalms. But there's four verses that overshadow his whole story. That when you think of King David, more often than not, these four verses seemingly always get brought up. It's found in 2 Samuel 11, 1 through 4. I'll read it. In the spring, at the times when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. That leads me to point number two this morning. Point number two is titled, The Battle Within. Point number two is, The Battle Within. 
You see, in that verse, David was not doing what he was supposed to be doing. The whole scripture starts off with by saying, during the time when kings went off to war, King David was the king over Israel. Kings were supposed to go to war, yet King David was at home. He thought he was above all that. I mean, after all, he did kill Goliath. He had many victories, and he thought he'd made it to the big leagues. We see the same spirit in a man who's now married a wife. And in doing so, thought he's outgrown the need to continue to date her. To continue to make her feel like she's the only girl in the world he chooses. We see the same spirit in a woman who out of frustration has closed off the intimacy with her husband. Who perhaps now has a new job raising kids than the job of being a wife. That the old ship is passed and there's a new idea of how they're supposed to live. I remember when I was dating Aubrey, my dad, I was like, Dad, you've got such a great marriage. You've been married for so long. You and mom are happy and you laugh and enjoy it. What, what's your secret? What'd you do? My dad told me something that kept with me forever. He said, Ash, how you get her is how you keep her. He said, exactly what you did to win her over in the first place is what you need to keep doing to win her over every single day. I gotta tell you, I still love taking my Aubrey on dates. I still love just being goofy, making jokes and laughing, telling her how beautiful she is. I do enjoy kissing her still from time to time. You know, she is pregnant after all. Come on, somebody, there we go. But it's all true. How you get her is how you keep her. And it's true for a lot of other things. How you get the job is how you keep the job, by showing up early, by staying late. How you get noticed is how you keep it. How you get it is how you keep it. So David, as king, is not doing what he used to do to get him there. He's not with the people. He's not doing his kingly assignment of gaining territory, of dreaming again. If you got where you are because you were dreaming, don't stop dreaming. Don't stop building buildings. Keep going. And above all else, David, at this point in time, stopped going to God. How I know this is true, because when you read David, when he's, before he's king, conquesting, before every fight, every battle, every decision, he would entreat the Lord. But right here, when he stopped going out, he probably woke up this morning and said, I've lived every single day for God. Perhaps this is the day I can just live for me. And David stopped entreating God. He stopped talking to God. He stopped praying with God. And in doing so, he was caught up in something he didn't want to be in. See, David's on a rooftop alone, and he sees a woman taking a bath, coincidentally named Bathsheba, which always makes me laugh. So I'm like, is her name really Bathsheba? Or is it just Sheba? And that's what she was caught doing. Is that how you differentiated people back in you know, Jewish times? Like, I was at the mall today, I run into Sheba. Oh, she, which Sheba is it? Bathsheba. Oh, okay, Bathsheba. I thought it was Shower Sheba, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like Bakery Sheba, <laughs> Movie Star Sheba. But like, is that just, I gotta think. I really wanna ask God, like, what's her name really, Bathsheba? Very interesting name. That's just, I love the Bible. But in this time, David's on the roof alone, seeing Bathsheba taking a bath. But what's crazy is, no one else was around David. No one knew what David was thinking. No one knew what David was going on in his head. No one knew what David was looking at, except God. In that private moment, a battle was fought in David's head. No one else could see what was going on. There was a private battle in David's mind. Should I pursue this woman? Should I not? Should I talk to God? Should I not? Should I ask for help? Should I not? Should I do something? Should I not? There was a private battle that nobody else knew that was going on in David's head. Friends, I gotta tell you the reason why there was a battle in David's head is because there's a spirit in this world called lust and it put something in there saying you should do something. We don't know where it comes from. We know that it's real and we have to deal with it. And since David had stopped doing what got him there, 
He now decided it was his turn to do something that felt good for him. You see, David lost the battle when he was in private, and he ended up losing the battle when it came out in the public world. Friends, the easiest way we'll overcome lust is by winning the private battles. When we win the private battles, we'll win the public battles. Before Jesus was ever able to accomplish his victory on Calvary on the cross, the very first moment he gets baptized, he went into the wilderness alone, and he had a 1v1 with the devil. He had a temptation when no one was around. And because Jesus won the battle when no one was looking, it was easy for Jesus to win the battle when all eyes were on him. Can I get a quick amen this morning, Dream City Church? You won't ever have to worry about failing or in cheating on your husband and wife if you never cheat on the inside. It all starts from the inside you. We are formed in the womb. The very first thing that forms is our, is our inside organs. I got a boy coming, his name's Joel. He's gonna be a terrific young man of God. I pray for him. I pray that he looks as good as his mom, but he's masculine, obviously. But it's gonna be great. What's crazy is I'm like, Aubrey has this app and we get to see he's like the size of like a cucumber, right? How big is he? A mango, delicious. He's the size of a mango. But I'm like learning about him. And what's crazy is his, the first thing that forms is his heart, his kidneys, his intestines, his internal organs form first, and then his external layer, the skin, develops around it. That literally, my son will be formed from the inside out. That if he, as he grows, he has to grow from the inside out. We're born from a womb. We go from the inside of the womb to the outside world. If you want your life to grow, then you always grow starting from your inside. If you, come on, somebody. And if you're in a place where you're not growing, my marriage is, is stagnant. My workplace is stagnant. My relationship with God is stagnant. All my friendships are stagnant. What's going on in your inside? What are you not growing in? What type of tumor, what type of cancer, what type of detriment is in there preventing you from growing that you need to release? You see, you can never live wrong but expect your life to be right. You can never do the wrong thing on the inside but expect your outside world to be okay. You see, David failed the private battle. But how did he end up being such a good king? I'm at the Michelangelo's David like, this dude is awesome. I can't wait to meet him in heaven. And he's epic. But why do we still view him as a good king with this monumental failure? What was it that caused him to rebound? Let's continue with the story. I'm just gonna kind of go with the story. So David, after he pulls off this giant heist, is kind of posting up in his bedroom chamber. He's sitting there probably smoking a cigar like, David, you dog, you have just outsmarted the entire world. Nobody even knows about this. I might do it again. He's just, he's just puffing himself up. He's thinking it. And then in comes a man by the name of Nathan. He's a prophet of God, a man who lives for the truth of God and the ways of God. And I love it. I could just see the scene in my head. I could just see David's kind of posting up watching Netflix. And Nathan, boom, kicks open the door. And David's like, Nathan, bro, what's up? It's good to see you. You coming to watch some, you know, The Office on Netflix? And then he's like, no. King David, I have a story to tell you that broke my heart when I heard it. David's like, oh my gosh, tell me what happened. And Nathan said, there was a man in Israel, a very poor man who had one sheep. And that sheep was like family to him. He loved the sheep so much. He would take it for walks. He'd play with it. He would even let it eat at his table. He loved it so much. It was family, that little sheep. It's all that he had. And his neighbor across the way was a very rich man, had a thousand sheep. But one day the rich man was trying to entertain a dinner guest, but rather than taking the one sheep from his flock in the middle of the night, when no one was around to see it, he walked over and he stole the poor man's sheep and they slaughtered it and ate it. And as David's hearing this story, he's just irate. He says, Nathan, you find the man who did this and we're gonna put him to death on the spot. What about the Bible? 
is Nathan, no doubt, looks David square in the eyes and he says, King David, you are that man. I'm not gonna lie, I got chills just from reenacting that story. I'll never forget uh, a man I love listening to, a pastor, he was on a podcast with a secular guy and the secular guy asked him, why do you use the Bible? And the pastor said, because it works. Because the Bible works. You can't read the Bible and not have it influence your life. Can we get a quick amen this morning? So after that convicting story, David just begins to weep and he weeps and he weeps and he repents to God in that moment. The story goes on that the child that was conceived from Bathsheba and David never made it. They went to heaven to be with God. And David had fasted for six days that God might save the baby. When the baby eventually died, David immediately didn't go to eat. He didn't curse God. He didn't say, God, what's wrong with you? The Bible says that after that, David went straight to the house of God and he worshiped him again. Say, God, I need you in this life. I can't do it on my own. Nothing I produce will be worthy. Can you please take it from me? So we see Nathan, a prophet of God, a man of God, cared so much about the ways of God and the life that he was willing to risk his life to go to the king unannounced. Back in those days, we kind of know this from the story of Esther, but if you went into the king's room unannounced and he didn't want to hear you, you were dead. But Nathan was willing to risk it all because he loved the truth. Friends, I gotta ask you, do you have a Nathan in your life? Or ladies, do you have a Natalie in your life? There are things we become blind to that we can't see. That's why we have a church full of people who can see it, but also feel emboldened to speak it out. Now, this doesn't mean that anybody can come and critique your life and cast judgments on you. You know, being a Nathan comes over time and respect is the fruit of the Holy Spirit is evident in their life. But do you have that person who can come in uninvited, unplanned, bringing an unwelcome word that's gonna hurt you to hear. That's how David overcame this moment and cemented himself as a man after God's own heart. That's why we have men's ministry. That's why we have women's ministry. So you can encounter these people. All of us in here need to have a Nathan and all of us in here need to be a Nathan. I'm a pastor. I'm, well, I'm ordained, I work for God, but I still have pastors that I go to. I still have my dad who can check in and call me. You're never too big to have a Nathan. That was how King David survived. No matter how big he got, there was a Nathan in his life. See, Nathans are designed to help the person to live the full life set free from the grips of the spirit of lust and regret and live the life God made for them. See, God did not create us to live this neutered, unpassionate, pathetic life. God doesn't want you to have no desires in life, to not have any passions, to not have anything you pursue. Jesus came to bring a full life and life to the full, John 10, 10. If I'm being honest, oftentimes our human response to the issue of lust is we pendulum swing in the other way. In order to overcome our, addition, our, our issue with lust, we just shut down that part of our life completely. We turn it off so we don't have to deal with potential repercussions. We almost gravitate too much to what Christ Jesus said when he told us to pick out our eyes so we don't live with sin. Jesus didn't want to have a bunch of blind disciples. He was teaching us to fix ourselves before we seek to change the outside world. Yet sadly, many of us in this life with an attempt to overcome sexual lust, we completely shut off our romantic side. And usually the collateral damage is now a spouse who for no fault of their own feels obsolete, doesn't feel worthy, feels wintered out, as if they're at fault despite it not being the case. Or some of us in an attempt to not bow down to peer pressure, whether it be to conform in who we are at work, to go out and drink alcohol, engage in illicit activities. We just stay inside and hide from the world. But last I checked, God didn't make the world for the wicked. He made it for his sons and daughters. Psalm 115, 16 says that God made the heavens for himself, but the earth for the children of man. 
I'm not gonna live life inside. When I was in college, I joined a fraternity. I was the only kid that didn't drink, didn't smoke, didn't have sex with girls. They would tell me this is how people live, but I said, this is how I'm gonna live. God made this world for me. I'm not gonna live by your standards. I'm gonna do what I wanna do in Christ Jesus. I didn't back down, I stood my ground. Because God gave me these passions. He didn't want me to live a neutered, unpassionate life. See, what's crazy about the Word of God, what I love about the Bible so much, you know, I do the Bible in a year, I talk about it all the time, the one-year Bible, I'm on my fourth one-year Bible, is I read the Bible every day and I still will always find something new, every single time. A new blessing from God, a new promise from God, or just a new verse that I haven't read the same way before. You see, many of us over the years of Sunday school and sermons have heard about the horrors of lust, the horrors of coveting, and that's exactly what I'm preaching on right now. But I remember reading this verse in 1 Corinthians 12, 31. That blew my mind. See, God gave us strong desires. He gave us passionate beings. He made us passionate beings. 1 Corinthians 12, 31 in the King James Version reads, but covet earnestly the best gifts, but lust after the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. That one of the earliest English translations of the Bible, Paul literally tells us to lust after the ways of God. To covet the goodness of God. Paul was saying, friends, you are passionate beings with motives and dreams and hopes and wants. Don't sell those short. But are you including God in them? You see, friends, it's not, wrong to, to, it's not a wrong thing to desperately seek the ways of God and enjoy all he has to offer. It's wrong to desperately seek all the ways of the world and leave God out of it. Proverbs 10, 22, the blessing of the Lord makes the person rich and adds no sorrow with it. It's okay to enjoy life. It's okay to be passionate. But are you rooted in the right thing? God wants us to seek after him and he'll take care of the rest. When it's God's will, it's God's bill. Can I get a quick amen? He'll take care of the rest. It's never wrong to desire God and enjoy the life he gives us. It's never wrong to do what is right. But sadly, this world says that a lot of wrong things are right. We have a world that says living uh, together before marriage is okay, despite all the statistics showing that it always leads to a higher divorce or separation rate. The world continues to say that homosexuality is normal, despite it decaying a society from within. We have a world that says the only thing that matters is making money. We have women who have regrets of not starting a family. We have a world that can't even define the word woman. <laughs> and you're wanting us to take advice from you. The world is saying that a lot of wrong things are right. But that's why we have the house of God. David in Psalm 84 said, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. And I was in, Aubrey and I were in Italy and I got to see some beaches, some restaurants, I'm a big history guy, museums, architecture, art. And I was in love with it, but the whole time I kept thinking how right David was. All that stuff was powerless compared to God. David wrote Psalm 84 when he was being hunted by King Saul. This is a man anointed as king. An innocent man who's done nothing but love his father-in-law is being hunted to the point where David is sleeping in caves, naked, ashamed, alone, and just in a bad place. And David writes this song. David could have been dreaming of a nice beach getaway. David could have been dreaming of a nice Chick-fil-A sandwich. He could have been dreaming of anything. But David said, well, he's on the run with nowhere else to go. God, I'd rather have one day with you than a thousand days elsewhere. I remember reading it, I finally, it finally clicked in my head what this meant. A thousand days elsewhere. It's a thousand days where I'm gonna get hurt. I'm gonna get wounded. I'm gonna make mistakes. 
I'm gonna do the wrong thing. I'm gonna battle with lust. A thousand mistakes can be made in a thousand days. But if I had just one day with God, if I had one day on a midweek service, one day on a Sunday where I came in so desperate and I encountered the real presence of the holy God, Jehovah, who can meet my needs, who can heal me, who can win my battles, who can bring me peace in an instant. Friends, I wouldn't trade that for anything. If I could have everybody bow their heads and close their eyes this morning. Before we get to the, to the heart of today, I, I never wanna do a service where I don't just allow people who are far from God to encounter him again. If you're in the seats and you're saying, Ash, I'm far from God. I've not only lost the private battles, I've given myself over to them. Or perhaps you're in this place and you've never even known God. And you're saying, I wanna learn more about him. I wanna make him my Lord and Savior. With every head bowed and every eye closed, a moment between just you and the Lord, could you lift your hands so I can pray with you? On the count of three, just lift up your hands in this place. One, two, three, lift up those hands in this place. Wow, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, I see that hand. Thank you, I see that hand. Thank you at the back, I see that hand. Thank you at the back, I see that hand. Thank you, I see those hands. Thank you in the balcony, I see those hands. Praise God, you can put those hands down. With every head bowed and every eye closed, could I please have everybody repeat after me? Everybody please say, Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son Jesus to die on a cross for my private sins and my public sins. Lord Jesus, today, I choose to love you I choose to serve you every day of my life. In Jesus' mighty name, everybody said, amen. Amen. Please give a quick round of applause. If I could please have right now our, our altar team and our prayer team and our pastoral staff come down the front. Right now, I know how challenging responding to this verse can be, to come down the front if, if you're in a battle right now, because obviously we're like, oh man, what's he going through? Is his wife Okay. Right now, I just wanna ask if everybody could please just stand up in this place. Everybody stand up. I'm inviting the worship team up here. We are never more like heaven than when we worship God. You will never get a closer sample of what heaven is like than when we sing our praise to God. But as we're singing this morning, if you're in this place and you're saying, Pastor Ash, I need a Nathan in my life. I need someone who's willing to speak to me in the hard moments, tell me that hard word. Come down and ask God to pray to deliver you one. Or if you're in this place and you're saying, Pastor Ash, I'm caught up in the wrong lusts. I'm caught up in the wrong covets. Please pray that God might re-motivate, re-energize, re-ignite my desire for his will. Or perhaps you're in this place, and I said earlier, that a physical adultery oftentimes leads to a wake of carnage. And you as an individual or you as a couple have walked through something and you'd like prayer. Please, friends, I know it might hurt, but it won't kill you. It'll make you strong. Come down in the front and get prayer. But for the rest of us, for the next five, 10 minutes, let's just sing to God. Let's bring heaven to earth. The world is a dark place outside. The world's full of sex, disease, all the wrong things. Let's bring heaven right now. And let's praise God one more time. So for the next five minutes, let's, let's sing this worship song. But if you need prayer, please, please come down to the front and receive a touch from the Holy God. Even if you're in the balcony, walk your ways down and receive prayer this morning. See you in five minutes. God bless you.